0: The most uh, detailed account of the resurrection is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is the most exhaustive treatment of the resurrection in the New Testament. It's penned by the guy that we're gonna study his conversion, but here's what Paul writes. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll pick it up at verse three. Paul writes, "'I delivered to you as of first importance "'what I also received.'" that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared, Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, you have individuals and group appearances. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Paul says you can talk to them this reality is, in, is investigatable. You can do the research. Then verse seven, 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to James. That's Jesus's skeptical half-brother. Then to all the apostles. And as Paul goes down the list of appearances, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. Notice in five, he appeared. In six, he appeared. Seven, he appeared. He says, and last of all, As it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So a resurrection appearance to the Apostle Paul as well. For I am the least of the Apostles who am not fit to be called an Apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. If you turn to Acts, which is just a little bit back, Acts chapter 9. Paul's conversion story is probably the, one of the most radical in all of church history. It's probably one of the more unexpected conversions, and there's been many radical conversions in church history. We can go all the way back to the time of Augustine, who was really a partier. His mom was praying for him. We can come to a recent history when we look at a man like C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis called himself the most reluctant convert to Christianity in Europe. And he was having an all-night conversation. I think J.R. Tolkien was there, the author of the Lord of the Rings uh, books and movies, and um, Lewis's brother. And Lewis was on the way to somewhere, I can't remember the details of the story, but he was in the sidecar of his brother's motorcycle and was converted to Christ, and wrote the book called Mere Christianity and was probably one of the most brilliant apologists that the church has ever known. In our more recent history, a man that's still alive today is a man named Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a journalist and an attorney. He worked for the Chicago Tribune. And his books have been uh, read by many people. And it's called The Case for Christ. And I think there's even a case for the Resurrection or a case for Easter. Uh, He's written a recent book called The Case for Miracles and documented uh, many incredible miracle stories, medical miracles. Uh, It's an amazing book that I would uh, say for you, give it a read. But Lee said that he had, his wife had become a Christian. He was a raging alcoholic and his wife had become a Christian. And he said, as an atheist, that was the last thing and the worst thing that could have happened in his life. And so he, he set out to disprove Christianity, and in his own words, he thought he could do it in a weekend. <laughs> he said it took him on a two-and-a-half-year odyssey where he began to do investigative research, and he, he decided that if he could disprove the resurrection, then he could talk his wife out of being a Christian. But you probably know the story. Lee did his homework, and he was gloriously converted to Christ because the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is overwhelming. In fact, legal minds would say it's probably the best case, most documented case provable from antiquity by interviewing the documents and so forth. Paul just gave us a section in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter on the appearances. Uh, Scholars call this multiple attestation. That means that there's multiple people that attest to seeing the risen Christ. And it's not just Peter, and it's not just Paul. It's more than 500 brethren at one time. It's his skeptical brother, James. It's Saul, who was an enemy of Christianity and was gloriously converted on the road to Damascus. We're about to look at that. And so this is just another amazing transformation story. We're going to call this message, I Saw the Light, And it's Acts chapter 9. Luke, Dr. Luke is writing. He's the only Gentile author of a New Testament book. He also came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says these words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Acts 9 verse 1. Now Saul, who became Paul. We'll talk about that in a moment. His name change. If you're interested, the date of Saul's uh, experience on the road to Damascus, meeting the risen Christ, the resurrected Christ, is dated between A.D. 33 and 34. So the immediate resurrection appearances happened within 40 days of Christ rising from the dead. Acts chapter 1 says that he appeared over a period of 40 days and gave many convincing proofs of his resurrection. And he appeared to individuals and groups over that period of 40 days, and he was talking to them about the kingdom of God. But years later, there was another resurrection appearance. It's one that you don't normally hear about on an Easter Sunday morning, and it was the appearance to Saul, who was also known as Paul. The same risen Christ some years later appeared to Saul. And I will say to you that he appeared in the same way that he would have appeared to Peter and the more than 500 brethren at one time. He was the resurrected living Lord. And in fact, he is today the same. The same way that he ascended into heaven with the scars in his hands and his feet and his side is the same way that he exists today. He is forever the God-man. And one thing that you can know as a Christian is that when you pray, you're praying to one who is fully God and fully man. And so when you pray to him, he is sympathetic and empathetic because he's been through all the things that we've been through and worse and more, yet without sin. And he lives to intercede for his people. It's a beautiful reality. And the apostle Paul was on this road to Damascus. He was going to uh, do some damage. He had been doing damage to the church. Saul, he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And Saul went to the high priest. Acts 9.1 literally says, Saul was breathing in threats and murder. A.T. Robertson explains that threatening and slaughter had become the very breath that Saul breathed. He'd become a man of hate, and his hate was namely directed at the disciples of the Lord. He couldn't get to Jesus, so second best was to get at those who followed the Lord Jesus. In the book of Acts, just a little bit before where we are in our Bibles, there's a record of Saul watching something occur that is... uh, relevant to our time this morning, I want you to look back for a moment at Acts chapter 7. Stephen, who was an early witness in the church and one of the first martyrs, uh, was preaching a radical sermon to the religious leadership. He went through their history. He went through the rejection, uh, them pushing away the Holy Spirit, the truth of Christ. Now, when they heard this, Acts seven fifty four, they were cut to the quick or cut to the heart, They began gnashing their teeth at him, that is, at Stephen. But being full full of the Holy Spirit, Acts 7, 55, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, Stephen said, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out, the crowd did, with a loud voice, and they covered their ears and they rushed upon him with one impulse, When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He was probably in his early 30s at this point, and they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the name, as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, Acts 7 verse 60, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, Do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep or died. And there was a young man named Saul, an enemy of the Christian faith. And this is one of many occasions, apparently, where Paul was there when Christians were being brutalized and mistreated and even killed in the case of Stephen. And Paul will say later in his testimony, as he testifies before governors and kings, that when they were putting Christians to death, he cast his vote against them. This is literally Greek language that means he threw the black stone. Some of you may remember the movie Gladiator. And when the emperor was in the Colosseum and people were wondering whether the emperor would say he lives or he dies, Paul often standing in a situation like this would essentially put the thumb down and say he should die. And he didn't care if you were a woman, a man, he didn't care what age you were, young or old. He was an enemy, and he breathed in and out threats. The J.A. J. Alexander suggests that Saul's breathing out murderous threats in Acts one. if you take a look back there, was an allusion to the panting or snorting of wild beasts. While later God's grace is seen, Calvin says, not only in such a cruel wolf, but being turned into a sheep, Saul, who becomes Paul, but also... In assuming the character of a shepherd, Saul went from hate to love, and this can happen for us. There are groups in our day right now that not only are against the Christian faith, but they are trying to wipe it off the map. There are atheist organizations that go to graveyards that have crosses, uh, government land, anything that they can do, they attack the Christian faith. And they don't want any sign of it anywhere. And it does make you wonder why they're so gung-ho to wipe something they don't believe exists off the face of the map. And there's anger and resentment. And some of these folks, frankly, grew up in the church. And they had a bad experience. And so now they're on this quest to destroy the Christian faith. But whenever someone is like that, there is something going on in their heart. You need to know that when you interact with people that are angry at the Christian faith, angry at the church, angry at Christ, there's probably something percolating in their soul. Maybe that's you. Maybe, you haven't, maybe you're watching and you haven't been in church for a long time and you're just mad. And maybe you had a disappointment by a Christian or whatever it may be. Look, that, that does happen. But when someone is this bent on destruction, it would seem looking psychologically, that maybe they're compensating for something. And Saul asked for letters, Acts 9, 2, from him to the synagogues. He went to the chief priest, the high priest, at Damascus. That's the capital of Syria. He was willing to go anywhere to stamp out the faith, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's an early way to describe Christianity, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life both men and women, he didn't care who they were, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That was Saul's quest. He wanted to find Christians everywhere. And the early church was largely Jewish at this point, and Christians were still meeting in synagogues, and they were worshiping Christ, but they still gathered in synagogues as one of the main meeting places. And there were synagogues in virtually every city where there was a Jewish population. So Paul wanted to make it official And he got official documents from the ruling class, if you will, of the Jewish religion. And he wanted to go into the synagogues with that authority and pull Christians out. He wanted to investigate and bring them bound to Jerusalem. But Paul was the one that was bound. He was bound by hate. He wasn't free. He was bound by this quest that he thought he had to do. Later, he will... Uh, be before King Agrippa, and he will give his testimony, and he says in Acts 26, 9 through 11, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, even to foreign cities. Acts 26, 9 through 11. I would find a Christian and I would say to them, you deny Christ. You say that he's a false messiah, or you're dead, or I'm taking you and your family to jail. Do it now. Don't you dare say that he's the messiah. That's what Paul would do. And he was furious. He was enraged at the Christian faith, at believers. And who knows how many times Paul got someone to recant their faith, because you guys know that not everybody trying to make a stand for Christ has stood strong. I wonder how many Christians under the threat of potential death or prison said, okay, I recant. I wonder how many uh, sleepless night Saul had after this thinking, how many people did I get to deny Jesus? And maybe at the time that he was doing it, he took kind of a weird pleasure in it, but now having been converted, he would have regretted it. How sad to be an instrument of the enemy to push people away from the living hope of Christ and how sad it is in our day that people are still doing that very thing in universities and in different places where they didn't even want to hear about the gospel. They think it's ridiculous, even though it's so provable from antiquity. And so he would say, deny the Messiah and live. He wanted the authority. He wanted the letters. And he says later, in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, as he writes to a young pastor, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. But he goes on to say these words. He says, And yet for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me as the foremost or chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience, listen, as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And now to the king immortal, or eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. amen. I wonder how many times Paul revisited his former life and said, oh God, thank you for your grace. Oh God, thank you for your mercy. You know, sometimes when we, we revisit our past We replay things that we we did in our BC days before we knew Jesus. And there's some ugly stuff in some of our lives. Ways that we denied him, ways that we pulled other people into our sin. And sometimes it's a bit overwhelming to think of what we did against him if you were not saved at a young age. But yet, he's a God of grace. And it came about that as Saul journeyed, Acts 9-3 He was approaching Damascus, the capital of Syria, just to the north of Israel to continue his dastardly persecution. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. Now Saul was going to do more damage, and Jesus said, it's time to stop this. And a brilliant light came from heaven. It shone all around Saul. Later, he would describe it as a light brighter than the noonday sun. God's intervention. Joel Rosenberg, who's written several books, he's an amazing uh, Jewish Christian, says, in my third novel, The Ezekiel Option, I tell the story of two Christians driving through the mountains of Iran with a car full of Bibles. Suddenly, their steering wheel jammed and they had to slam on the brakes to keep from driving off the side of the road. When they looked up, they saw an old man knocking on their window and asking if they had the books. What books, they asked. The book's about Jesus, the old man replied. He went on to explain that an angel recently came to him in a vision, told him about Jesus. Later, he found out that everyone in his mountain village had had the same vision. They were all brand new followers of Jesus, but they didn't know what to do next. The old man had a dream in which Jesus told him to go down the mountain and wait by the side of the road for someone to bring books that would explain how to be a Christian. He obeyed. And suddenly two men with a car full of Bibles had come to a stop right in front of him. This is one of my favorite passages, says Rosenberg in the Ezekiel option. But it's not fiction. I didn't make it up. It's true. I got it directly from a dear friend of mine who is the head of a ministry in the Middle East. He personally knows the men involved. I simply asked if I could change their names for use in the novel, and my friend agreed. God is still doing miracles today, amen? Go wait by the side of the road, okay? And all of a sudden, this car stopped. You got the books? I got the books. Who are you? I got a vision, he got a vision, they got a vision, wow. And this comes from reliable sources, folks, that are saying that same light from heaven is still moving in dark places. When Paul's before Agrippa, he says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. It was shining all around me as I was journeying, those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad in the... And this time was something that you prodded an ox with. And it was basically to get him moving to plow the field. When I did some research on the goad, and it says it's hard for you to kick against the goads, plural. A goad, it didn't really have a sharp edge, but it was sharp enough to where if you kicked against it, it would actually wound you. And Saul is pictured here by Jesus as kicking against this object that every time he kicked it, it wounded him. It's hard for you, Saul, to kick against the goads. How long, you might say, will you fight me? Every time you kick against the goad, you wound yourself. Every time you won't surrender to me, you just hurt yourself. And how many goads did Saul have? What do we know about Saul prior to this moment? Well, we know that he was a Pharisee. We know that he would have been in Jerusalem during the Passover, and it is very likely that he intersected with Jesus at some point in Jesus's earthly ministry. And I was thinking about this and thinking, you know, if Saul was there when Jesus preached Matthew 23, one of the most radical messages that Jesus ever preached, basically at the scribes and the Pharisees, he calls them over and over again, hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. And then at one point in that message, he says, blind Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're filthy. I know what's in you. Do you think Saul was one of the blind Pharisees standing there that day? I think so. And you want to know some irony? After this happens, Saul becomes blind. But after this, he'll see better than he had ever seen before. And I'm sure that Saul minimally probably heard Jesus preach. Maybe he saw a miracle. Maybe he was there when they were celebrating the raising of Lazarus as Jesus was entering in on Palm Sunday and all the events that surrounded that. So many miracle accounts, so much incredible preaching, but Jesus also confronting the religious leadership of his day, cleansing the temple, upsetting everything. I'm sure Saul knew exactly who Jesus was. And I think it was bothering him. Perhaps he knew Jesus's words from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Then he stands there and he says, Stephen should die. And Stephen says the same thing. Lord Jesus, please don't hold this sin against them. And there's Saul. And people are throwing their coats at his feet. And Saul goes, die. He should die. He should die. But he had to go to bed that night. And do you think that Saul was bothered? He was being goaded. The way to think about this is his heart was being pricked. And he heard Stephen say, Lord Jesus, I see him. He's standing at the right hand of God. He's alive. That had to bother Saul. He was trying to stamp out the truth. He was trying to suppress it, push it away. But it was bugging him. And every time he kicked against it, he wounded himself more and more and more. Now, you know what the solution to kicking against the goads is? Stop. Stop. (laughs) One word. This is deep. Stop it. Because it's just hurting you. At what point will you decide that you're going to surrender? Some of you have been to many Easter services, and you come and you go, but you have not surrendered, and you're goaded by many things, and it bothers you for a while, but you find a way to turn up the music in your life. You, tie, you find a way to push it away so that you don't have to deal with it, but it goads you. It bothers you, and it should, because this is the most important thing that you need to hear and deal with. And I was in the same boat. And even as an early Christian, I was bothered by many things that I tried to go back to. Saul was probably goaded by doubts, by Stephen's shining face, by his incredible testimony, by the memory of Jesus himself. Maybe the sermon, blind Pharisee. And Saul says, I heard the voice. Acts 9.4, the, vi- the voice twice said, Saul, Saul, this incredible light, a double call, Why? And a question, why are you persecuting me? If you've never seen this before, Jesus takes the persecution of his church personally as though they were doing it to him. When you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me, whether it's positive or negative, that's in Matthew 25. And so Saul is confronted. Why He's got this brilliant light. He's got to know this is the light of God. He's been overwhelmed by the light. He's fallen to the ground off of his high horse and a double call. And Saul went to a lot of Sabbath school, Shabbat school. And he would have been familiar with a double call to another man. His name was Moses. We're going through the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings and Moses approached the burning bush and from the bush he heard a voice say, Moses, Moses, here I am, Lord. Take off your shoes. You're standing. On holy ground. And when Saul heard Saul, Saul, that double call, he had to be thinking, whoa, <laughs> who is this voice that's calling to me? It's this light is brighter than the sun. There's authority and power. It's knocked me to the ground. What would Saul do with this mighty presence and power? He did the natural thing. He said, verse five, who are you? <laughs> Gulp. Lord. And he said, are you ready? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. There's a couple Old Testament encounters that I thought of. One's in the book of Judges and the father of Samson is named Manoah. This is Judges chapter 13. The angel of the Lord, which most scholars believe is an uh, early appearance of Jesus before he's born in Bethlehem because he's forever God the Son. He's eternal, second person of the Holy Trinity. He appears in the Old Testament, and he, there's a promise of Samson's going to be born, and he interacts with Manoah and his wife, and there's a sacrifice, and the angel of the Lord goes up in the flame of the altar. And Manoah says to his wife, I'm summarizing, he says, we're dead, because we just saw God. And the wife says, well, if he wanted to kill us, I don't think he would have accepted our sacrifice. <laughs> oh, yeah. But people in the Old Testament, when this happened, and it was fairly rare, they thought, we're dead. Nobody can see God and live. And Saul's on that road, going to do damage to the church, finds out this brilliant light is Jesus, what's been bothering him. And what do you think Saul was probably thinking? I'm dead. (laughs) And Jesus had every right to judge Saul on the spot. Think of all the damage he had done. There, there may have been many people who would have said that, that was justified. That man should die because he's impeding the church. He's trying to destroy Christians. He's, he's killed people or allowed people to die. Why shouldn't he be judged on the spot? And Saul so had to be thinking, you know what? I'm dead. And I got it all wrong. And I just want to pause here to tell you, you know, the statistics on death are pretty impressive. Sorry to tell you, but one out of every one of us (laughs) is going to face this unless Jesus comes in our lifetime. Don't leave this planet with a question mark hanging over your life. Don't do it. And many people put this off. And imagine the thoughts that must have streamed into Saul's soul. Oh, no. Christ is Lord, and I'm about to die. But that's not what was going to happen because God is merciful, and He is told, "Rise, enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do." As He shares this uh, testimony, and He shared the story many times, and we should be sharing our testimony as well. He says in Acts 22:10 and 11. I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand and those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. What shall I do, Lord? Saul was pierced to the heart. He was blind, knocked to the ground, had to be led by the hand by those who were with him, Imagine that walk. Regret. Guilt. He goes into a house and Saul doesn't know who to turn to now because the whole construct on which he had built his life was gone. Can he go to the chief priest and now say, I've met this Jesus that we don't believe in? And certainly Christians don't want to have anything to do with the guy. He had to feel like the most lonely man on the planet. A man... Truly in between. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, seven. They heard the voice, but seeing no one. This was a radical moment. Scholars say of the things that Jesus taught, one of the new things that he taught the world is that God seeks lost people. And Saul was certainly lost. And Jesus told that great, those three parables in Luke 15 one of them about the prodigal son, that God comes to seek and to save lost people. Luke 19.10 says, the son of man came to seek and to save those who were lost. Oh, how Saul needed to be saved. He didn't know it at the time. And so Saul got up, ate from the ground. Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. He was blind. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. The verse is a great description of Saul's spiritual life. He was blind, but maybe he was going to see, and he was going to see like he had never seen before. There's another account in the Old Testament. I won't take you there, but I think you're familiar with it Genesis 32, for those of you who are taking notes. And there's a night when Jacob is literally between a rock and a hard place. He's by a brook, and he knows Esau's coming with an army of men, and he's He's hurt his brother on a couple different occasions, and he doesn't know what his brother's going to do. So he separates himself from his family to try to separate the people to protect the groups. And he's alone in the camp, and a man shows up. And basically, he wrestles with this man, I put in quotes because it's the angel of the Lord, wrestles with him into the wee hours of the morning. This is early Old Testament MMA dirt's flying. Now you guys who are into MMA, I don't quite get it because basically the goal is to knock the stuffings out of the other person and then basically knock them out, right? So that they can't breathe. And they get them in those chokeholds, right? And you know, you got them when they go, Hey, you want to come over on Friday? We'll watch people go. yeah, we'll have a Bible study afterwards. (laughs) But literally, I understand that in MMA, the goal is to get someone to what? Submit. Mm. And if you get them in that hole, they go, okay, 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 mommy, grandma, uncle, whatever they got to (laughs) say. Then you release them. And they don't have to go. (laughs) Now, in that account, there's a dialogue. And the angel of the Lord says, what's your name? And he says, Jacob. It means conniver. That's an admission. I'm a conniver. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Later in the account, Jacob will ask the name of the visitor, and he says, why do you ask my name? And he doesn't give it to him. But he renames him from Jacob Coniver to Israel. There's all kinds of conjecture on what Israel means, but some have said it means to be governed by God. But James Montgomery Boyce, who's now with the Lord, I think broke the word down really well and said that Israel means God prevails. And Jacob didn't want to let go because He was technically losing. Even even though it says he prevailed, that's a play on the name. He says, I don't want to let go until you bless me. Please bless me. And the visitor touched him and dislocated his tendon connected to his hip. And Jacob never walked the same again. He was hurt. He was wounded, and and as he was wounded, he said, please, I'm not letting go until you bless me. I'm not letting go until you bless me. And there was a blessing exchange that had to do with the place that he was touched. It was a promise that God would make good on what he had promised to him. But Jacob never walked the same again. But in losing, he won. In submitting, he found life. Saul was now blind, but he was about to be changed forever. And sometimes, brethren, God has to do something in your life where you get hurt so that you actually can be healed. Everybody understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we just try to do it without God. I got it, I'm good, and then all of a sudden something happens. And Saul would write later, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now that's something that he had to discover. And he was three days without sight. He fasted. He neither ate nor drank. And during that time, Saul was praying. And he didn't want to eat anything. He didn't want to drink anything. His emotions were just overcoming him. Now we're going to move quickly through this section, but the camera pans now 10 there was a certain disciple at Damascus in that very city named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, behold, here I am, Lord. Now here's Ananias, he had his morning coffee. You know what, I think I'm gonna pray. Lord, here I am, whatever you would have for me today, I'm willing, here I am, send me. Oh boy, was that a dangerous prayer on this morning. Now I'm sure the Lord had options of disciples But Ananias seems to be in that situation where he's ready and the Lord says to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and acquire at the house of Judas. That's not uh, the Judas who betrayed the Lord. For a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. What do you think Saul was praying You remember right after you got saved what you were praying? I think Saul was doing something like this. Oh God. Oh Jesus, please forgive me. Oh Jesus, I'm so sorry for Stephen. He probably went down the list of people that he had hurt and wounded. And I'm sure there was a prayer in there. Lord, will I ever see again? I want to see. I'm so sorry. Would you please Be gracious to me. Would you heal me? I'm willing to do whatever you call me to do. I'm sure prayers that resonate with all of us. And he has seen Jesus talking to Ananias in a vision a man named Ananias, that's you, (laughs) come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias was probably thinking, I'd like to lay my hands on him, (laughs) but in a different way. (laughs) Ananias answered, Lord, Let me update you on current events. I'm not sure if you got the morning paper, but I've heard from many about this man that he's done much harm, how much harm he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon thy name. You want me to go pray for this dude? That'd be like turning myself into the police. Why would you have me go pray for this guy? This guy is trying to destroy your church, and I've heard he came here with the letters. And by the way, there are commentators that believe that Ananias was a leader in Damascus and that he may have been one of Saul's main targets. Hey, by the way, Saul's coming. You better pray because he's got a short list, and Ananias, you're near the top. Now you get a vision from the Lord to go pray for the wolf who came into town to kill you? Uh Uh-uh. Here I am, Lord, send him. Here I am, Lord, send her. (laughs) Could I adjust my prayer just a tad? But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument. Saul's name means asked for. He was named after the first king of Israel, He's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. We don't know if Paul was given a snapshot during that time of how much he would suffer, but he suffered a lot. He bore in his body the very brand marks of Christ. He was martyred in the late 60s AD beheaded according to church history, and would not recant that Jesus Christ was alive. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament letters that are in our Bibles today. Talk about a transformation story. And Saul, who was also known as Paul, you can look at Acts 13, I think it's verse 9. Some believe that Jesus renamed Saul to Paul, but Saul, Saul was a Roman citizen, and Paul is a Roman name. It has Latin origin, and so some believe that he was also known as Paul. Saul was the great, tall, handsome first king of Israel, regal. Paul in Latin means, guess what, little. And he went by that name for the rest of the book of Acts beyond chapter 13, perhaps to say, I no longer want to be called by that regal name. I want to be known as Little because when I decrease, he increases. And so Ananias came to pray. As Paul tells the, st- tells the story, this uh, devout man, Acts twenty two thirteen came to me. He stood near to me. He said, Brother Saul, calls him brother, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him, and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. And brethren, I want to tell you that this conversion story is probably the reason why you're sitting here today. Because Paul went into Europe and he was on, he did three, at least three missionary journeys and reached to the areas of Europe, which then populated the United States. Eventually, his time unfolded. This is how the gospel got out, is God got a hold of this guy named Saul who became Paul. And he became a vessel, fit for the master's use. And he suffered. And Ananias departed and entered the house. 17, we're just gonna end at verse 18. And after laying his hands on him, can you imagine Saul? He might might have wondered if anyone would ever want to touch him again. The laying on of hands is a beautiful sign of prayer and empowering. And the, He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the prayer happened. And immediately, Dr. Luke, writing a medical doctor, says there fell from Saul's eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight and he arose and was baptized. Can you imagine the thrill of joy that Saul must have experienced in that moment? Acts twenty two sixteen. Ananias says to Saul in his own personal testimony, and now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Can you imagine when Saul came out of the water, he must have been saying, Lord Jesus, thank you. I will serve you. Send me wherever you would send me. He had been cleansed. He had a new beginning. And Ananias said to him after that prayer, after he regained his sight, why do you delay? Get baptized. Baptism doesn't save you, but it depicts the washing away of sins. Start a new life, Saul. That's what this is all about. And I want to ask you at the end of this message, why do some of you delay? Why do you wait? Why do you wait to finally say, Lord, I surrender"? I don't want to kick against the goads anymore. I don't want to fight you anymore. I want my life to be used in your service. And if you've been fighting him, remember, Saul saw the light, and God was gracious to him, and God sent him on a mission to open the eyes of people, that they might turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, just like Saul, that they might receive forgiveness of sins, and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in Christ. Paul says to King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to that heavenly vision. Father, thank you for the resurrection account of Saul, Jesus to Saul of Tarsus. An unlikely convert (laughs) But I guess aren't we all? None of us deserve your grace. But grace has been described as God's riches at Christ's expense. And if Saul's story means anything to us, and it should, one thing that it does say is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and we qualify. Father, thank you for the hope of this account. Jesus, thank thank you that you seek and save lost people, people like me. And you set our feet on solid ground and you say, follow me. I'll show you what life's really about. I'll give you a promise and a future beyond this life. I'll show you what true riches look like, what true meaning looks like, what true honor looks like what love really is. So many of us, Lord, were lost by the world's definitions of these things. And you rescued us. And this room and those watching is filled with many believers who have moved from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. And we rejoice, Lord. Thank you. We wanna just be more in service of our King. But for those who may be prodigals, those who don't know you this morning, I pray that they would hear your voice, not my voice, your voice. Would you take a moment? I know this day is probably busy for a lot of us, but would you take a moment right now and allow the Spirit of God to just allow the Word of God to go deep into your heart? If you're not a Christian, this day is for you. But you have to have a moment when you receive, when you repent, when you decide to surrender. And it's something like this, and this is not a perfect prayer, but it's Lord Jesus, and I would encourage you pray it if it's you. I believe in who you are. I believe that you are God who became a man. I've seen your light today. I repent of my sin and I place my trust in you. Forgive me for my pride, for kicking against the goads, for fighting you. I surrender today. To all that means, I want you to be my king and my Lord and my God and my savior. I wanna follow you, I wanna be used by you. I don't wanna just do church. I wanna know you and be used by you and influence others for you. If you're a prodigal, I don't have to give you the prayer. I think you know what it is. And it's just, Lord, I want to come home. Tired of running. I'm tired of fighting you. My heart hurts. Would you heal me? Just cry out to him. Just take this moment. Don't let it pass you by. And then for the wonderful saints here, Lord, who this incredible, faithful congregation what can I say? They are family. They're so awesome, the way that they serve and love and give. and I'm overwhelmed by what you've done in this, this fellowship, Lord. I just give you thanks, and not to mention a living truth in Arizona and Kansas and a radio ministry that you're reaching a lot of people through, and Lord, even missionaries that are here with us today that we support and partner with in the gospel, so many incredible good things. You've been our shepherd all of our lives. You are good. Bolster and strengthen our faith today in the living, resurrected Christ. In his name we ask and pray, and all God's people said,